0: So we're going to continue with the uh, book of Jonah, and today we're going to be looking at the marks of a true revival. We're going to be looking at chapters 3, verses 5 to 9. As I was paying attention to a, a news clip about the uh, tragedy that took place in Texas, and four-year-olds, five-year-olds, being gunned down, and uh, the parents, I was listening to how parents were trying to get in for something like 35 minutes. They weren't allowed to go in. No one was allowed to go in while the, uh, the shooter was uh, wreaking havoc and taking away young lives. And as I was listening to this, I said, Lord, the pain and the suffering that's in this world is just unimaginable. And we just get a fraction of that. When we see something like this, it's just a a fraction of the pain that is compounded worldwide. It's everywhere. We, um, at times, are numb to the suffering and the pain in this world. We are oblivious to it because we're so caught up with our own lives. But in actuality, God allows evil to rear its ugly head so that it can stop us dead in our tracks to remind us that this is not heaven, that we are merely ambassadors. Like Jonah was an ambassador, we are ambassadors. We've been left behind because we have a mandate. And in this time of pain, suffering, and much confusion, and uh, violence that spreads all across the globe, if it's not one thing, it's another. If it's not Ukraine, if it's not some other place that it's equally as awful, because it's only what is brought to our attention through the media. Otherwise, we're not even aware of much of the things that are happening in the world. Pain is real. Suffering is real. Violence is real. And what the world needs is the gospel. The gospel. And thank God that the Lord has revealed himself to us so we can pray for those families. But more importantly, we can share the gospel. That's what we're here for. The city that Jonah went to was equally violent. It was, as I said in previous messages as we're going through this book, it was a city that was known for its brutality. Impalement was a pastime. Flaying people, skinning them alive, a pastime. All of it. They were known to be a terror. The Assyrian Empire was built on the blood and bones of people they crushed and spilt. Hundreds of thousands of them. That was the situation. And God sent this man. And today we're going to see how a revival took place amongst these godless people. Just remarkable to see. I pray that the message would be a blessing to you. Please stand as we read Jonah chapter 3 from verses 5 to 9. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God and they called a fast and put on sackcloth. From the greatest to the least of them. And when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, removed his robe from himself, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the dust. And he issued a proclamation and said, in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, no person, animal, herd, or flock is to taste anything. They are not to eat or drink water. But every person and animal must be covered with sackcloth. And people are to call on God vehemently. And they are to turn each one from his evil way and from the violence which is in their hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Father, thank you, because indeed you are a merciful God. And your mercy, of course, is displayed wonderfully throughout scriptures and most eloquently at the cross. For there you chose to crush your very Son, something we cannot fathom, we cannot understand, we cannot grasp, so that you could welcome sinners and have them seated at your table as saints, children of the Most High God. This is all you're doing, and for this we rejoice. We give you glory for this amazing plan. And I pray, O Lord, as we go through this chapter, this portion of Scripture, that you will give us light and that we would be able to draw those nuggets of truth that would do us much good as we relish the wonderful love of God, as we treasure this great truth. I pray for everyone who is here, that your hand would be upon each one, upon their lives and on their families, that you would use us for your glory, I pray, in our homes and at the workplace and wherever we may meet people. And this we ask in the precious and glorious name of our Lord. Amen. Please be seated, beloved. So from my childhood, I... um, I often heard the word revival. I would hear it in churches. I would hear it in conversations. People would say, we're praying for a revival. And I was often befuddled with this term. And at the beginning of each new year, I would hear someone say, this year God is going to do something amazing, something special. There's going to be a revival. And uh, as, as if God is waiting to do something special. God is doing something special every second every nanosecond, because his works declare his glory. Unfortunately, we're unable to see much of what he is doing unless our eyes are open to see it. There are times, however, moments when the world stops, meaning those who are not believers stop and notice a divine work of God. Such was the case when God visited Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Now can you imagine this empire is known for its brutality and for its um, wars and for its terror. That's what it sowed. It sowed terror wherever it went. But imagine the change that happened and subsequent to that, what happens worldwide, at least in the world known then, how people began to talk of the change in Nineveh. Jonah's cryptic message, without any glimmer of hope, just brought about this dramatic change in the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Never in all of Scripture do we see something like this, never. Now there are instances in the Old Testament when God's people, for a moment, short-lived, recognize God as their God, for example, in Elijah offered a sacrifice, and fire came down from heaven, the people all bowed down and said, yes, the Lord, he is God, yes. Not Baal, because they were always saying Baal is God, but the Lord is God, and they acknowledged it. Or for example, when God gave the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai, the people were filled with fear, and they all trembled and asked Moses to continue communing with God, and they would be removed because it was just a frightful moment. There are instances in the Old Testament where you see God's people uh, en masse acknowledging God's presence and worshiping God and and, um, uh, bowing and revering God. But there are very few. And it's only because there's a display of power, God's power. When the Shekinah glory comes down on the temple or... The house of God, more exactly. What do people do? They bow and they worship. Again, there's a display of power, right? But to see a city, a people, turning to God, following the preaching of an individual, it's nowhere to be seen in the Old Testament. It's something unusual. As sweeping in scope as we see it here, in the book of Jonah. In the New Testament, there are instances when people did repent. For example, after Peter preached, you see 3,000 coming to Christ, the saving faith. Philip preaches in Samaria. Again, large crowds come to saving faith. But that is in the New Testament. But in the old, you never see this. In most instances, when God's prophets would preach, The people would rebel, and prophets were welcomed with uh, curses or stoning, whatever else, imprisonment. People did not repent in such a large scale as we see here in the story of Jonah and Nineveh. The Old Testament, like I said, it was not to be seen. In the New, thankfully, it is seen because of God's grace. The Ninevites, this makes it even more unusual, the Ninevites were not acquainted with God's ways. They knew nothing about the altar, the temple, the priesthood. They knew nothing about the Ten Commandments. They knew nothing about God's laws. They knew nothing about anything related to God. Scriptures were foreign to them. These were barbaric individuals. That's it. So it makes it even more amazing to see such a dramatic change in a people like this. Just because of a simple, cryptic message that Jonah gave. It's really unusual. So now let's consider the marks of a revival, because that's what we see here. A revival is when someone abandons godlessness and turns to God. When it's, in, you know, in an individual, it's conversion, when it's a large scale uh, phenomenon, it's called a revival. But it's the same thing conversion, one or two or three, and revival when there are multiple people coming to Christ and abandoning sin. So we have first in verse five the first mark of a true revival is not emotion. Some people will say, Oh, what a wonderful service! There was a revival. And he said, okay, what, what do you mean by that? Just, it was just a euphoric moment. People were excited and jumping, and, and that's not a revival. A revival is defined very clearly in scripture, and we see it here happening. That's why we can n- notice the marks of a revival in this passage. And the first one is faith. Faith. Then the people of Nineveh believed. In God, And they called the fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. They believed in God. Jonah is speaking, and he's not giving them any hope. He's simply saying, as I said last week, 40 days, you are doomed. You're finished. So Jonah, right after he's thrown on shore makes his way to Nineveh, and as soon as he enters the city, he begins his preaching. Straight out preaching the message that God had given him. No introduction, no identifying of himself. By the way, I'm Jonah. You know, I come from uh, northern Israel. I just happened to be passing by. You know, none of that. No words of commendation. No words of accusation. No, you've Awful, awful people. You deserve to die. None of that. No opinion. Straight out. 40 days and you're finished. Now they recognized him from his attire because he was a Hebrew. And as I said many times, Hebrews uh, wore tassels and they wore specific garments that identified them as such. And so they recognized him. But they also must have recognized him from his bleached hair. (laughs) Right? His bleached skin. And perhaps he was bald by this time because of all those digestive juices and his hair must have been gone. Now the sailors, some scholars say this, and it could be, the sailors sailors had no longer any cargo because it had been thrown overboard, right? Because of the storm. So without cargo, it was useless to go to Tarshish. So they made their way back to Joppa. Uh, As soon as they landed in Joppa, what did the sailors do? They began telling the story. They began talking about this Jonah and how he was um, disobedient to his God, Yahweh, and how they finally had to throw him overboard because of the raging sea. And how this great sea, sea creature came out of nowhere and swallowed him up. See, that's what they were telling. So the story spread like wildfire. Did it spread to the people of Nineveh? Most likely. I think it did. But regardless whether it spread to the people of Nineveh or not what is important is that Jonah preached to the people of Nineveh and they converted based on the message that he gave them now Jesus tells us in Luke 11 something very interesting about Jonah in Matthew tells us that as Jonah dwelt in the sea belly and sorry in the belly of the sea creature for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will dwell in the belly of the earth. Right? So therefore, Jonah is a sign. That's a sign that Jesus gives to his people of that day. But in Luke 11, it says something else. In Luke eleven thirty, 30, it says, For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. So what is he saying? Not only that Jonah is used as a sign by Jesus so to speak of his burial and resurrection, but Jonah himself was a sign to the Ninevites, which means that when Jonah came into the city of Nineveh, they were convinced of the message because he himself was the sign. Had Jonah simply gone to Nineveh without having experienced the storm being thrown into the sea, being held in the belly of the fish, being vomited, and then going to Nineveh, had that not all happened, he would not have been a sign. He would have simply been a prophet. But he was more than simply a prophet. He was a sign. And as a sign, the faith that kicked in rapidly was facilitated in such a way because of the sign. And Jesus uses that to rebuke the people of his day. Because in his day, people were unwelcoming towards the message of Jesus. So the story of Jonah is a sign to the people themselves. So no elaboration, no explanation is given. The very life of Jonah, and what happened to him, was a sign accompanied by his message, cryptic and one of doom, and the people believed. Belief happens because God ordains it to happen. Often we come across this question. What about those that have never heard? People in faraway lands that have never heard the gospel. What happens to them? Is God so unjust? Well, God's word does say, to whom much is given, much will be required. But it is clear from Romans 10, verse 14, how then are they to call on him, meaning Jesus, in whom they have not believed, how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without a preacher? You see, faith is always accompanied by the preaching of the Word. No word, no faith. No word, no faith. Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. So if there's no one that preaches, Paul says, How will they believe? They cannot come to faith unless first they hear the word. If the word is not present, there can be no faith. Had Jonah not spoken, the Ninevites would have ended up like Sodom and Gomorrah. In Sodom and Gomorrah, no one is sent to warn. No one is sent. God just simply rains fire from above and fire from below springs forth and consumes the twin cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. That was not the case here. A servant is sent. He preaches, and faith follows. And Jesus mentions this very point years later when he goes to his very own people who meet him with incredulity. They reject his message. Jesus says, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. They repented at Jonah's brief message. And here, God gives his very son, someone greater than Jonah, Something far greater than what Jonah could represent. He is the very son of God, and yet they repented not. The same unbelief that was present in the hearts of God's people in the days of Jonah in Israel was still there in the hearts of the Jews in the days of Jesus. Think about it. So the Gentiles repent under Jonah's preaching, but the people of Israel remain disobedient and rebellious. Here comes Jesus thousands of years later and what do we have is the Gentiles are open to the gospel and the Jews are uh, stiff-necked and rebellious and incredulous. It's the same scenario that he sees. So Jesus points to the unusual faith that was birthed in the hearts of the Ninevites with the preaching of Jonah and which is but a small part of the message that Jesus gives which is the amazing grace of the gospel. Jonah's message was received by faith, and the glorious gospel is rejected instead. That's what Jesus points out to. So faith is the first. Without it, it is impossible to please God. That's the first mark of a revival, faith in what God says. Secondly, it's humility. In verse 6 we read, that when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, removed his robe from himself, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the dust. So here's a powerful monarch, the most powerful empire at the time, and what we see is that he humbles himself. This king who ruled over the Assyrian Empire puts aside his royal garments, and in plain view, for all to see, he humbled himself under this word, of judgment, God gives great importance to humility. I was intrigued once at how much God values humility when I read the story of Ahab. Ahab was a wicked king, as you know. He was married to uh, Jezebel, an evil woman from Sidon. She wasn't a Hebrew. And on one occasion, Ahab wanted the vineyard of Naboth. It was a, an adjacent vineyard to his palace uh, estate. And he goes to Naboth and says, look, I'll give you whatever you want. I'll I'll give you something in exchange far better. Just it's close by, I want this vineyard. Naboth, of course, refuses because inheritances were never sold or given away according to the teaching of the law. And he pouts. He goes to his room. He he just acts like a child. and, And Jezebel, his wife, sees what's happening and she, like a Swiss watch, does what she does best and makes sure that Nebus is eliminated. He's gone. Vineyard is available. In comes Ahab. It's his. And Ahab is all happy and he has his vineyard. And until God sends Elijah to speak, the prophet, to speak to Ahab and tells him that disaster will come upon him and his household. Right? And he is so overwhelmed with sadness. And look, if you read in 1 Kings 21, 27 to 29... We read, and yet it came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and fasted. And he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Now pay attention to what he says here, saying, do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? He's speaking to the prophet, right? Says, Have you noticed? Did you pay attention to this? It's remarkable. Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days. I will bring the disaster upon his house in his son's days. <laughs> you know, I can imagine Elijah saying, well, bring it on. He's wicked. He's evil. He's brought the entire country into idolatry. Bring it now. <laughs> but God says, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Because he humbled himself. That's how much God values humility. This man was evil. And only in this instance we see him humbling himself. It was a very small window of humility. Because overall it says clearly in God's word no one gave himself to doing evil as Ahab did. He was a wicked king supported by his evil companion Jezebel. For this reason, we have Peter reminding us believers in his letter with these words, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. So when there's a word of warning, of correction, when there's a word that comes to us of um, even of punishment... The best thing to do is to humble ourselves because God exalts those who humble themselves. He lifts them up, but he brings down, he rejects those who are proud. Humility is what we witness in the king's response. He did not consider himself above everyone else. He didn't say, okay, everybody else, just uh, stop everything. I'll continue being king. I'll go on and reign and rule like I've always done. No, he humbled himself. He understood that he deserved punishment, and therefore he humbled himself before God. His humility was visible for all to see. Notice that he covered himself with sackcloth. That is, he took off his royal apparel of silk, of fine linen, and put on himself this coarse material that was abrasive and rubbed, grated his, his skin, And he sat in ashes, dust. It's the same thing that Job did after a series of calamities strike his home. What does he do? He tears his robe and he puts on sackcloth and he he sits in dust and he covers himself with ashes to convey his grief. That's what this king is doing. I am sorry. I am really humbling myself before this mighty God, Before whom I have sinned, I recognize I am at at guilt and I'm filled with violence and sin. I'm responsible for all this. And therefore he takes initiative and he humbles himself before the people so they are aware. Humility is valued by God. The prophet Isaiah, speaking to God's people, says this is the right heart condition that God looks for. Isaiah 66, verse 2, But I will look to this one, at one who is humble and contrite in spirit, who trembles at my word. And that's what this king did. He trembled before God. He was a wicked man. He was in charge of the carnage that was that uh, Syria was responsible for in many areas of the world, and he humbled himself before God. When we justify our sin or excuse it or explain it away, we are resisted by God. When instead we humble ourselves, God is attracted to that. Humility attracts God. And that's the second mark of a revival. The third mark is prayer. Verse 8. But every person and animal must be covered with sackcloth and people are to call on God vehemently and they are to turn each from his evil way and from the violence which is in their hands. Notice what the king says here regarding prayer. He orders that people everywhere call on God vehemently ardently, with intensity, with passion. In other words, people were not to pray glibly. They were not to use repetitive words. They were to pray with earnest. They were to pray because it was a serious matter. It was a pressing situation, and everything else, in your house, in your estate, in your farm, whatever else, can wait. And to make it clear, he himself says, let the animals be covered with sackcloth. Imagine it covering, why? Because the horses, the donkeys of the royal family had uh, special saddles and they were not only beautiful to see, but they were covered with special saddles and everything had to stand out as though to communicate, we have power. He says, remove the saddles. Remove anything that conveys beauty and cover them with sackcloth, this coarse material. Let them suffer as well. And they are not to eat. They are not to drink. None of us are going to eat. None of us are going to drink. In other words, he's saying, this is true, this is real because God gives us a sign in this man. And then he calls the people to pray. Now they didn't know how to pray. How do they they had never been taught to pray to Yahweh. They had been praying to Baal and Astart and you know, Molech and Mil- uh, uh, Chemosh and so forth. Not to the God of heaven. There was, no, there was no covenant between the Assyrians and this God. They had never been taught to pray. So they prayed the best they knew how. And they prayed to this God, Oh God of heaven, God of Jonah, who knows what they said. Please have mercy. Have mercy, O oh God. And they continued this prayer for 40 days with all their hearts. Here's the unusual thing that will happen before Jesus returns. Jesus himself points to this. And I want you to pay attention to the situation that the world will find itself in before Christ returns. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Now pay attention. Not the days of Jonah, but the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were giving marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. What is Jesus saying here? He's pointing to human customs. He's not pointing to anything that's evil. They were eating. Oh, well, everybody eats. They were drinking. Well, everybody drinks. They were getting married. They were proposing. That's common stuff. That's everyday stuff. What is what's going on here? People are continuing with their life as though there is no judgment. There is no standing before a holy God. That's the problem. The king of Nineveh understood. There's judgment. It's coming on us. Let us pray. Let us be earnest about it. What Jesus is saying is that there is no sense of urgency in people. There's no sense of we need to call on God. We need to make the gospel known. We need to preach it. We need to warn people. No, there's none of that. Had the king not felt the urgency... The situation had he not believed, had he not humbled himself, had he not prayed, where would he have been? Where would that city have ended? Did not continue with the affairs of the kingdom, stuff had to be done. He stops everything. He tells his court gestures, Stop! He tells his advisors, Stop! Everyone, stop! It's time to pray, it's time to seek God. Do we understand that there is a pending judgment? Do we understand that if we do not pray, people will not come to saving grace? Do we understand that if we do not urge God in prayer, asking for their souls, that salvation will not happen? Do we understand this? Or have we chosen to live for the moment? Have we chosen to just, you know, just basically uh, take it easy? Luke describes how the early church prayed when Peter ended up in prison. It says in Acts 12, verse 5, And so Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made to God intensely, with earnest, by the church. They had just lost James. He had been put to death. And now Herod had arrested Peter, this other apostle. So they're saying, my goodness, what's the church going to be How's the church going to survive if all the leaders are going to be removed? How are we going to go ahead without a leader? And so he's there in prison, and the church said, Let's just pray. We're helpless, we don't know what to do. Let's pray. And that's the best thing to do is to be put in that position of helplessness with our backs against the wall and then we turn to God and we seek his face and we pray. And they were probably praying, Lord, help the church. Peter's going to be beheaded next. And then what? Please help us. We are without a leader. And they prayed earnestly. And God did the unexpected, as we know. Yes, the prayers of a righteous man, as James says, avails much. Avails much. And then we have repentance. That's the fourth mark. So we've looked at faith. We've looked at humility and prayer. These are the three marks of a genuine revival. The last one is repentance. Verse 8 again, But every person and animal must be covered with sackcloth. People are to call on God vehemently, and they are to turn each one from his evil way and from the violence which is in their hands. Even the king knew how violent they had become. In these words, and they are to turn each one from his evil way, we have a definition of repentance. Repentance is the decision to turn our backs to sin and our face to God in humility. When Solomon dedicated the temple that he had just built, the beautiful temple of Jerusalem, he prayed that God would listen to the prayers offered in that place from the people who would come from everywhere to worship in Jerusalem. How did God respond to Solomon? Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 12 says, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer. I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locust to devour the land, or if I send a plague among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, I will heal their land. So here's Solomon saying, please listen to the prayers that are offered here. And God says, of course I will listen to the prayers, provided that they turn from their wicked ways. The psalmist says, if I cherish sin in my heart, God will not hear. See, many people have told me this. I pray and pray and I'm praying, God doesn't hear. No, God hears. But God has a very clear condition when we pray. We are to repent. No repentance, and God does not hear. He's very clear. He refuses to hear us if we refuse to abandon our sin. There lies the crux of the matter. Repentance is a 180-degree turn from my one position to another direction. We abandon a sinful lifestyle and we embrace God's view. One we know that pleases God. The people of Nineveh knew that their ways were wicked. They were living and doing that which displeases God and they were violent. So prayer alone was not enough. You humble yourself, you're praying, but now what? There's got to be repentance. There's got to be a change. There's got to be a complete change of direction. So they had to stop engaging in evil deeds. Paul writing to the Corinthians, who, was, who were, by the way, Christians who had experienced God's grace but were engaging in evil deeds. He says, The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. The sorrow of the world produces death. What is the sorrow of the world? It's remorse. I've met individuals, and I'm sure you have too, who are, feel remorse, feel terrible for the things they've done. But while they feel terrible, they continue doing them. So they feel remorse, and there's no desire to change. That's simple remorse. And that, Paul says, leads to death. But the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance. It produces a change. See, what happened in Nineveh was a sorrow that was according to the will of God. It came over them. They repented. They changed. They stopped. John the Baptist, addressing those who were coming to him to get baptized, says this, so he was saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you offspring of vipers who warned you to flee From the wrath to come. Notice, he's always speaking about the wrath to come. This wrath has not come yet. It is to come. Therefore, produce fruits that are consistent with repentance. So they wanted to get baptized, but there was no repentance accompanying the baptism. John the Baptist was responsible for introducing the baptism of repentance. Right? Right? The baptism of repentance in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. So, they would, so the, the ground would be leveled. Every low valley would be raised up. Every mountain would be brought down. So in other words, every proudful person, every depressed individual would be brought up and the proud would be brought low and they would be welcoming to the Messiah who was to come. Because that's what John the Baptist was. He was a herald. Well, look at verse 10. And the crowds were question him, what, is your, what are you saying that we are to repent? And what are we to do? Verse 11, he would answer and say to them, the one who has two tunics is to share with the one who has none. He says, and goes on, the one who has food is to do likewise. You have food and someone else doesn't, share your food. Tax collectors came to be baptized. Notice, because John the Baptist would receive tax collectors. And this was, they were also called publicans. And they were rejected at the temple. They never were allowed to walk in. But John the Baptist welcomed them. And they asked, teacher, what are we to do? And he said to them, collect. So what it means. You have to pay your taxes. That's what it means. Collect no more than what you've been ordered to. Because tax collectors would also take more than what they were required to take. He said to them and the soldiers who also questioned him, saying, what are we to do? And these were soldiers who worked for Rome, and they were Jews. And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone, nor harass anyone. Be content with your wages. In other words, there's got to be a change in lifestyle. That's repentance. So if there is faith and humility... And we're praying, and no repentance, we're falling short. That's not a revival. It's not a conversion. A true conversion has those four marks that accompany it. And when we have those four marks, then we can identify it as the move of God. And when you look at your life, do you see these four marks? Are they present? And if they're not, then ask God for mercy. Say, Lord, may these four marks be in my life. And then... Let's pray that others experience these four marks of revival, of conversion, so that others can also be brought to saving grace. And who knows, maybe in our day, if we don't witness a mass revival, at least we can witness individuals who will convert by the grace of God and be saved and spared the wrath to come. Let us pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you. We thank you because Jonah, what a remarkable figure he was and how you used this recalcitrant individual who had no desire to preach to the Ninevites. And yet, what an amazing turn of events in the lives of the Ninevites when Jonah finally submits to your will. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy. We thank you because you are the God who still saves. And if the message of Jonah was one of judgment and it was glorious because it was given by you, how much more the message of God's grace today through Jesus Christ. It is such a glorious message. Yes, one far greater than Jonah, has revealed himself to us. And I pray that we do not take this message lightly and that we do not cease from sharing, from warning, from praying, that indeed there be genuine faith, genuine humility, genuine prayer, and genuine repentance, the four marks of a revival, that accompanies conversions. I pray for that, Lord. We pray for that. May your name be glorified at a time like this because your, your return is soon. And we want all those, Lord, who are still in darkness that we've spoken to and that we're praying for and that we have at heart, we want them to come to know the amazing grace of our Savior Jesus Christ. And if there's someone here today who still has not been taken out of darkness and translated into the kingdom of your beloved Son, O Holy Spirit, draw such a person. Draw him to Christ right now so that saving faith can be his or hers as well. This we pray in the precious and wonderful name of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.